Poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, Coach Brad, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com. And today is another episode of Tactical Tuesday with Coach Thomas, where he's getting out of line, battling with some recreational players on the streets of Ignition, these hands are played at 200 no limit. Thomas, welcome back. Thank you, Brad. These hands are going to be absolutely insane. Uh, happy to talk about them. And you mentioned in our conversation before we went live that the aim of these hands is to make poker fun again. What do you mean by that? I, I see too many players uh, live, especially, who just sit there and wait for the nuts and value bet and get paid. And they make a decent hourly, but I, they look bored out of their minds. Meanwhile, I'm sitting there trying to play upwards of 30% of hands at a nine max table. And most people look at me like I'm crazy when I say something like that. But I, I want to show that it is possible. And hopefully these hands show a little bit about how it is possible. With that said, let's dive in. And, you know, you mentioned something that's very near and dear to my own heart, that you're trying to get involved. You're trying to play as many hands as possible versus the players you're playing against at live poker. And there's only one way to reach the nodes that are deeper in the decision tree. And that way is to play hands, to be involved and kind of seek out opportunity where other folks might not see any. And I just think that's something that, is very, very important to me. Well, it also helps you in a, in a way that you might not think about. It's a lot easier to get paid when you actually have a hand. And if you're playing a lot of hands versus you're the guy who hasn't played a hand in three hours and suddenly you make a full house, you think someone's going to pay you off. Uh, it just seems super unlikely. As you get more reps navigating deeper in the decision tree with hands that you're not necessarily comfortable with, just by virtue of that, you are going to improve your thought process. You're going to improve, improve your navigational skills, which translates to a higher win rate and a way more fun time sitting there playing 35 hands an hour in a live poker room. Like it's not very fun playing like two hands an hour. Why don't we take it away with, with the first hand? So the first hand, there is a uh, new recreational who has posted in the cutoff. And it folds to him. Let me let me stop you here. You say a new recreational. How do you know that it's a new recreational, especially on Ignition, where you don't have any HUD stats or screen names or any historical data? Sure, I, I'm getting to that. So they bought in for a full stack. So I, I don't have any data yet. But uh, as soon as it gets to them, they choose to raise the $7. It's a 200 and L game. Uh, most regulars are going to open to $4 or $6 or $5. Uh, and this sizing is a, a little out of the ordinary and something that you see from recreational players. And on Ignition specifically, if you click the pop button, this is the default sizing. 
and I immediately am just assuming that they're a recreational player. Very clever, Thomas. Very clever. Just one pot click and fire away, and Thomas already has them pegged as a rec that he wants to dance with. Okay, so the recreational opens to seven from the cutoff after posting. Uh, it folds to me in the small blind, and I have queen three of hearts. I think it's really important that my hand's suited here to go ahead and do this, uh, but I opt to three bet to $26. Why did you opt to three bet with a queen and a three when I'm pretty confident there are no preflop charts I can find anywhere in existence that advocates getting this out of line? Well, I there, there's a couple of reasons. The first is the fact that they posted and then opened. I find that people tend to go out of their way to over-defend uh, once they post. And I think that his range is going to be wider than normal. And second is that with a suited hand and my, my skill edge, I do think that I'm going to be able to apply a lot of aggression post-slop and, and navigate the tricky decisions to ultimately make it profitable. Perfect. The old sunken cost fallacy. They've already invested one big blind. Why not invest a few more trying to take down this pot? Absolutely. So we have $54 in the pot going to the flop, and the flop is the king of spades, six of spades, and three of diamonds. So we have a bottom pair on a board that's quite good for our range in general here. So I go ahead and opt to bet my entire range for about a third. I bet $18 into $54. And taking going back from like betting your entire range, specifically here with this exact hand, queen three, what are some of the reasons as to why you should start by betting? I think the most important reason is to clean up your equity here. Uh, if your opponent has just eight, nine of clubs or something, it really sucks to give them a free card when they have six outs, you're basically giving away 12% of the pot uh, by checking to a hand like that, that has no business of winning 12% of the pot. Cool. So you go ahead, you bet one third with your three. What logistical plan do you have here? Like what's your strategy versus villain raising? What's your strategy versus, you know, villain flatting? What's your, what's the roadmap? With this specific hand, I'm probably just going to fold versus raise. Uh, I, I have a lot of strong hands to continue here and some, some draws. I, I don't think I need to continue this. Uh, what I'm, I'm really uh, hoping to see here is either a call or a fold. Either is probably pretty decent for me. Just if they call, I think there's going to be a lot of bluffing opportunities or bluff catching opportunities, depending on the exact run out. And if they fold, obviously, that's just we take down the pot and great result for us. Okay, so we bet one-third with our queen and our three, our bottom pair. The opponent calls. This would be a pretty horrible hand for a podcast if the opponent just folded on the flop. <laughs> um, Next week, that's what I'm bringing. Someone folds <laughs> on the flop to a third pot pass. <laughs> yeah, just make them fold pre-flop to the three bet. Why, why stop there at the flop? Just Let's just go all the way pre, make them fold. You, continuation bet one-third. The villain calls. The turn is the king of hearts. So now the board is king of hearts, king of spades, six of spades, three of diamonds. We have a three with a very strong kicker, um, the queen. What are your thoughts here on the turn? Well, at this point, betting seems a little bit silly. 
We could get value from a flush draw. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Why does betting seem silly? I think that when we bet the flop and he calls, the most likely hands for our opponent to have are going to be kings, flush draws, pocket pairs, fours through uh, probably tens, maybe jacks, uh, and some six X. And I just don't think our hand is doing quite well enough against that range to go ahead and bet for value. It feels like we're going to get punished by the King X and lose a little bit too much money versus pocket sevens, pocket eights versus the, the fl- getting value from the flush draws. So you opt to check here? Yes, I do. And the opponent goes ahead and bets about one quarter of the pot, about $26 into 90. Mm-hmm. What's going through my mind here is I'm trying to think about what hands have the incentive to bet this size. Uh, I don't think that a king is really going to bet this size, so I'm, I'm almost exclusively ruling that out. I think that flush draws and then straight draws, 6x that's betting for protection and, and all of the pocket pairs are can bet that size, but not the king x. And I think versus uh, that range and the price we're getting, we have a profitable continue, so I opt to call. Well, let me dive in here for a moment. I think you do have a profitable continue here because of what you said. I also want to say that we didn't really mention many flop floats in villain's range, and I do think that this specific archetype, the recreational player, is going to float quite heavily on these boards facing a one-third C-bet. They see that they're in position. They see that they're getting a decent price. So they call to kind of see what's going on. So I wouldn't just totally rule out floats. And I don't know that this sizing is necessarily indicative of a ton of flush draws because it leaves about a shove behind and you know them betting to open the action and give us an opportunity to jam it in with our like queens or jacks or tens, or if we do have king x for value or protection, I don't think that that's very appealing to our specific player here to just like reopen the action with a flush draw, give us a chance to shove so that they don't get an opportunity to realize equity. So I don't know how many flush draws they have. Um, I would be more inclined to kind of think that they have some floats and they have king x. Um, maybe they have some gut shots as well. Perfect. Why don't we move on to onto the river? So the river is the jack of clubs. So the board is now king of spades, six of spades, king of hearts, jack of clubs, and three of diamonds. The pot's $141. In this spot, I don't think there's a ton of merit to betting unless my goal is to try to fold out a six or pocket sevens or pocket eights. And I, I don't know that that's going to happen. I think that I should just be checking and evaluating versus bet. Absolutely. One of the things that recreational players don't do well enough, they don't bet thinly for value. And because they don't do a good job of betting thinly for value, we can kind of be prepared for them to check back their like sevens, eights, nines, their six X, even if they river Jack X here. So they have a hand like ace Jack or queen Jack that they floated the flop with. They're probably going to lean towards checking those hands back that ought to be in their thin value range, which just means when they do bet, they're very polarized. We've already made the determination on the turn that their turn sizing may not line up that well with King X. And so 
we want to face a polarized bet here, quite frankly. We want to give them a chance to put this bet in the middle so that we can extract max value from their floats. So that's exactly what happens. They go ahead and fire in a half-pot bet. They bet $71 into $141. And if you think back to the turn bet size, I, I don't think a king is likely to take that bet size. I don't think pocket sixes is likely to take that bet size. I don't think pocket sevens through pocket tens is going to take that bet size and then bet this river. So I guess what they're representing is they ran into a jack and they would have to have something like queen jack of spades or 10 jack of spades, which doesn't feel all that likely. So it feels like a very natural call with all of the draws missing. Uh, It does. I would like to go back to the turn decision point though, where And for the record, right now, there's $141 in the pot. The final board is king of spades, six of spades, three of diamonds, king of hearts, and the jack of clubs. So the kings are paired, $141 in the pot. The opponent has bet half pot on the river, leaving themselves with $60 behind. Going back to the turn and that kind of funky one-fourth sizing that villain used, when you face this sizing, Thomas... Does your intuition tells you that villain has one sizing here that they use or a spectrum of sizing? So they're going to be using different sizings for um, different hand categories. I would absolutely expect different sizings. I just think if they have a strong hand here, they're very likely to bet much, much larger than, than quarter pot, usually at least 75% pot or bigger. It seems like recreationals kind of telegraph the strength of their hand with their bet sizing. A lot of the times the half pot and smaller bets are seem to be a little bit bluffy. And then the, the big bets feel like they're a little bit more value heavy. And now let's carry over from the turn to the river where villain chooses to bet $70 into 140, but they do have another option, right? They have about $130 in their stack. The SPR is less than one. So there is a natural option to just rip it here with value. So would you also believe that they have multiple river sizings as well? Yeah, absolutely. I I see no reason why they wouldn't just go all in if they had a king or pocket sixes at this point in time, even if they did choose that wonky turn bet size. Yeah, and I think that's important for the listener to kind of understand and reflect and think about is like when you can discern based on one bet sizing, that your opponent has multiple sizes here, how does that impact their range construction? So like if our opponent here is sizing up with King X on the turn and they're also going to be shoving the river with some of their King X, let's not even call it all of it, right? Let's just say they have a mixed frequency here where sometimes they bet small, sometimes they bet big. What it does is it removes the value out of their range. So if they have two sizes on the turn, by virtue of having a large sizing and a small sizing, they have less kings in their range. And then on the river, it does the same exact thing, which plays a fairly significant role in our ability to call this river bet. Do you, ha- you got anything left to say? Anything left to add? Not too much other than I just think this is kind of a slam dunk call despite just having bottom pair. I, I expect to uh, probably win here like 80 or 90% of the time, which is Way, way, way more than necessary, given the pot odds. And 
alluding to how you described this episode, making poker fun again. It's always fun to be able to discern we're going to win this pot 80 to 90% of the time with a queen and a three, don't you think? Maybe that's me being overconfident. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We have another hand where Thomas uh, opts to play a pot with a suited queen, which apparently are his favorite type of hands. In this hand, we uh, we call the river and we bring down a $282 pot with our queen and our three. Our opponent has the ace of spades and the queen of diamonds. So they flopped uh, ace high and gave us a little float and then decided to turn their ace high into a bluff by betting the turn and betting the river. Stay tuned right after this short break to watch Thomas once again put a lot of money into the middle with a suited queen. John, I wanted to ask you why you decided to invest in a preflop boot camp. Everything that you had done with me to that point, or I had heard you do, had impressed me. I love the podcast. I accidentally ended up in the poker power hour and loved that. And then I took coaching and then you recommended the boot camp. And at first I didn't think it was, you know, something that would be that valuable. But I was like, everything else has been amazing. So I signed up and then it just blew me away. And what about boot camp blew you away? Like it started off slow, like I'm learning these ranges and I'm not even understanding what you're talking about. And then all of a sudden, as I start to understand what we're doing with the three bets, the four bets, all of a sudden it just kind of hit me. And I was like, oh my God, how do I not know this stuff? This is amazing. The more I studied them, I started to understand why they were constructed sometimes. Like I'd be like, that's why that's like that. And that would lead to more revelations and just a better understanding of poker in general. Do you have any interesting takeaways from your boot camp experience? The most interesting thing about the boot camp, it's a pre-flop boot camp, but I feel like it's done as much for my post game as it did for my pre-game, just because I'm not in as many awkward and bad situations as I found myself in. You know, when we were doing coaching before the boot camp, we couldn't get through 10, 15 minutes of tape without finding mistake after mistake. And then once we did the boot camp, it solved problems on the back end as well. I know you've studied for a thousand hours this year. How do you think boot camp compares to your other poker study? Oh, it's crazy. The boot camp is probably the most important thing I've done all year out of everything. I would give anything to go back and to, to know that stuff 10 years ago. I can't imagine how successful I'd be right now if I had known that stuff. And I thought the boot camp was so valuable that I literally insisted you take more money from me and paid you more for the boot camp because I was blown away. I just thought the price was too cheap. And it's changed my game in ways that I, I can't even explain to you. If you'd like to join the next round of Preflop Bootcamp, which starts on the last Saturday of every month, head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp to lock up your spot. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. Welcome back to this episode of Tactical Tuesday, where Thomas is running around maniacally like one of those monsters in the old rampage video game 
just wreaking havoc on the recreational players in his pool with some suited queens. Thomas, let's dive into this second hand. Okay, second hand is, I think, more interesting than the, the first one here because we actually get to play a suited queen versus an aggressive regular. Um, what we have is we have a, rec- a recreational player limp uh, from middle position, and a aggressive regular isolates to $5. So he uses a very small isolation size, which is a little bizarre to see. And generally, when a professional is isolating a recreational, they, they use a little bit bigger of a sizing, and they also normally expand their range a little bit. So I'm already looking to attack this range. And meanwhile, I'm sitting on the button with queen two of hearts and go ahead and three bet to $18. Let's pause this for a second. Why is it the inclination for the regulars when a recreational player limps for $2 to size up with their isolation raises? The limper usually calls too much uh, pre-flop and just makes massive mistakes post-flop. And it's just an absolute gold mine to go ahead and attack them with a, a relatively wide range. And, and you usually want to use a bigger size to just start getting more money in the pot. So either if they are going to call down, you're able to get Saxon by the river, or if they're going to fold, there's more money in the middle to force them out of the pot and win. Perfect. Makes perfect sense to me. So you go ahead and foil this regular's life who's trying to isolate uh, this limper small. You three bet to 18 from $5 and the villain calls. So we go to the flop and we get a flop of seven of spades, five of clubs and two of diamonds and the pot is $41. Our opponent checks to us and we go ahead and opt to bet small for many of the reasons from the last hand, we're just looking to clean up equity versus random nine, ten suited hands. Let me ask you, let me stop here. What range do you feel like this reg has once they ISO small and then go ahead and call the three bet? It's tough to say with great accuracy, but the hands that I would lean towards are going to be some middling pairs and a lot of suited aces. Uh, those are the, the most natural to me. Uh, other hands that they could isolate wide, widely with would be suited queens, suited kings, uh, broadways, offsuit and suited. So there, there's quite a bit of stuff in there. I would discount some of the, the bigger pairs, though, the, the tens, jacks, queens, kings, aces, ace, king type hands. I also would discount some of the hands with more robust equity, like king, queen off and ace, queen off, because they're naturally incentivized to size up because a lot of their values derive from like flopping a king or flopping a queen. So I don't really think they're going to be ISOing very small with those type of hands. So again, I, I think you're right. A hand like sixes, a hand like fours, trays, maybe pocket fives, maybe pocket sevens, and then some suited aces, maybe some like suited king type hands, and maybe some suited connectors like eight, nine suited, nine, 10 suited. And one thing that I like to think about with spots like this is, this is a board that's going to change a lot by the river. Most of the deck is going to be larger than a, a seven or a five here. So if, if our opponent has six, seven suited or pocket sixes or pocket fours, and they choose to peel one off on the flop, there's going to be a lot of turns where if we decide to turn our hand into a bluff, we're going to be able to put a ton of pressure on them. Yeah. So starting out by betting, we clean up our equity and we also can start 
considering turning our deuce into a bluff, running a three-street bluff here. Okay, so we bet $14, and our opponent goes ahead and makes the call. Uh, we get the turn of, is the five of diamonds, um, which isn't my favorite card. It's not one that I'm looking to go ahead and start bluffing on. And I do think they can show up with hands like five, six suited or ace five suited. I agree. And for the listener, the board now is deuce seven, five, five. So the flop was deuce seven, five rainbow. The turn pairs the five and it puts up a backdoor diamond draw. There, oh, also, there's $69 in the pot, and we've got about 190 Villain has this covered by a lot. So our opponent checks to us, and we ought to check back. I, I don't think uh, this is a particularly good card to bluff on, and I do think we still have some showdown value versus hands like 8-9 of diamonds, 8-9 of spades, any, any hand with backdoor draws that opted to peel the flop. And you're right, like this is not really a card that villain's going to expect us to credibly barrel with our hands like aces, kings, and queens, simply because the five ought to be in his range much more than ours. So I don't think we have much credibility with running like a three-street bluff with our deuce when the five pairs. So onto the river. The river is the six of clubs. So I'm going to repeat the board one more time. It is uh, seven of spades, five of clubs, deuce of diamonds, five of diamonds, six of clubs. So now there's a, a straight possible, but all of the flush draws or the flush draw missed. And our opponent goes ahead and bets $47 into a pot of $69. And we are left to a decision. What do you think about the decision, Brad? So one thing that I, I believe ultimately should be at the top of our hierarchy of information is that they're $69 in the pot. And that is Kevin Malone's favorite number from the office. Um, little side note before we, I dive into this river decision. When I was about 17 years old, all of my passwords to everything on earth was six, nine, six, nine, six, nine. And I thought that I was exceptionally clever and funny because of this and come to find out a decade later, apparently 696969 is like the fourth most often used password <laughs> on the whole internet. Yeah, I know that that's uh, maybe a little distraction from the hand, but fun fact 69 bucks in the pot. Villain bets 46. We're getting two and a half to one. We need to win this hand at 29%, 29% frequency. This six, six connects the board. So do seven, five. Five six. If they had any gut shot on the flop, it connected there. If they had, uh, yeah, I guess the gut shot connects. No real reason for them to go ahead and bet with like a six eight. So they're repping five x boats and straights. And yeah, I mean, it, it really comes down to how wide do we think that our opponent is floating the flop? Like, are they calling with all of their suited aces? So on deuce. Seven five. Do they have all the ace threes and the ace fours in their range? And on top of that, I actually think there's not a ton of incentive to betting with ace three and ace four on the river here because those hands have some showdown value themselves. Like they beat our king queens, our queen jack suited, jack ten suited. So I don't think those hands are betting. Really, I think it hinges on how wide they're floating out of position on this flop. I, I could get behind that. I think there's another factor that the listeners might not be thinking about, and that's that 
if you have a seven here and your opponent has a lot of over pairs in the range, are you really looking to value bet a seven on the river? And my thought is absolutely not. So the river bet here is representing a straight uh, three of a kind and in full houses and not so much like a pair of sevens or pocket eights or pocket nines. So it feels like a spot where if they continue, I don't know, nine, 10 of diamonds or nine, 10 of spades or any of the over cards with backdoor draws that might call the three bet on the flop. Uh, those are really easy to turn into bluffs here and they don't have showdown value. So it feels to me like a very natural call again on the river. I agree. And before we go any further though, I would like to do some combo counting just for the listener's sake. I know that this is a hard thing for you to visualize while you're driving down the road. Please don't drive into a brick wall while you're trying to listen to me count combos on the chasing poker greatness podcast, but here on do seven, five, five, six. So our opponent has four combinations of eight, nine suited. They're not going to have eight, nine off. Given the fact that they called a preflop three bet, they're not going to be ISOing that either, most likely. So four combos of eight, nine suited. They also have three combinations of deuces full. They have three combinations of sevens full. So what are we at now? That's 10 combinations, right? They have one combo of quads. So that's 11. And then maybe they also have three more combos of sixes, right? So 14. That's 14 combos of value. Then they're going to have two ace five suiteds and two five six suited. So that's a grand total of where am I at, Thomas? That's a grand total of like 18 combos. We're we're around that. We you miscounted a little bit in that we have a deuce in our hands. So there's, oh, there's yeah. only one combo of, of pocket deuces remaining. Yeah, so they got about 20 combinations of value, effectively. Let's just round it, make it a round number, 20 combinations of value. So how many bluffs do we need to find in order to call this river? Not a whole lot, Brad. And if, if, we, if we look at the uh, potential bluffs available, so if, if we think about like 9-10 suited, for example, with, with backdoor draws, uh, there's going to be three of those. There's going to be three of 10 jack. Uh, there's going to be three of, of queen jack, three of queen 10, three of queen king, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think we're really quickly going to get to a pretty even distribution of natural bluffs and of, of value. What I, what I think is pretty interesting here is that the flop is rainbow, which gives them a little bit more, it gives them a higher amount of combos in that they have a lot of combinations of overcards that have backdoor flush draws. So because there are three suits available on the flop, when they have jacked in of spades, clubs, and diamonds, they're likely to continue, which in this case, where we're trying to find a very low amount of combos so that we can bluff catch something like seven, that can make a big difference uh, between calling or folding on the river. That's all I got. By the way, do you have anything to, to add there? I don't think I have anything to add to, to that analysis, Brad. Okay, so because Villain doesn't need to have that many combos for us to profitably call this river, that many bluffing combos, you do opt to call once again. Absolutely, I hate, absolutely hate folding, especially with bottom pair. It's a great hand. What's interesting here too is that you may 
you know, the lister may hear this hand where we have a queen and a deuce and we three bet, we flop a deuce and we end up playing like $160 pot, playing 200 no limit, may seem kind of wacky. But the reality is like on this river, you need to make a compelling case to fold. You don't need to make a compelling case to call because when you only need to find a handful of combinations that makes a call profitable, a handful of bluff combinations, the exploit is folding. Like the exploit is folding when our when we're confident that our villain is under bluffing. And in spots like this, we just can't know that our opponent is under bluffing, especially when we start out by betting one third on the flop. So the default play here is just to click the call button. That's a really good point. Once you start studying the math behind poker, it becomes really apparent that people don't call down nearly as as often as they they should be given the the price they're getting. I uh, once I started studying the math behind poker, I I quickly found that I was calling bets, especially on the river, a lot more than just about any other regular at the table, and my win rate went through the roof once that started happening. Right. I think there's a natural aversion to calling on the river and losing. And like, this is the reality of poker. When you need to be right 33% of the time on the river, you're going to call and you're going to feel like trash most of the time. And that's to be expected. And most folks just, you know, are averse to feeling that emotional hit of calling and being wrong. So they only want to call when they feel pretty confident that they're making a good decision. One thing I tell students quite often is poker's not about always being right. It's about being right often enough given the, the price you're getting to, to go ahead and call or bluff or whatever action you're taking. I agree. I mean, we're, we're pl- living in a game of percentages. We're living in a game of math. We're trying to navigate it with our human emotions. That's going to create biases it's going to create some strategic blunders that are pretty massive and can be hard to overcome if you're not diving in deep and you really understand the math of what's going on in the middle of these decisions, what's going through Coach Thomas's brain as he three bets with a queen and a deuce and then calls the river here with fourth pair. Um, and both Coach Thomas and Coach Brad are like, yeah, clearly, this is a no-brainer call, right? <laughs> Confusing spot for uh, newer players, I'm sure. It is, but it just goes to show the depth and complexity of this game and like the value of understanding math and really thinking in depth about these spots. Coach Thomas, if that's all you got to say, let's but call. But it's not all. We, we need to give oh. them the results. Oh. So the people don't know what happened in the hand. Maybe we lost. Oh, that's true. <laughs> no, our... our our opponent showed up with the queen king of diamonds for the, the backdoor flush draw, which makes perfect sense and is feels very natural to turn into a bluff. And we picked it off. And if I was my opponent here, I would be scratching my head wondering where the hell I, I screwed up because something something went wrong here. Well, I can tell you where they screwed up. They screwed up by raising to five preflop. That was uh, their first mistake. Right, but I think the, the end result would have been the same because even if they had made it $8, I would have done the same thing. God, you're a sicko. <laughs> I think it's pretty clear here. What's interesting is them having exactly king-queen of diamonds is extremely validating for our strategy because it tells us that the combos that we're giving them as bluffs are in their range, 
And if our opponent shows up with, say, you know, sevens full here on the river, while that may sting and you're like, oof, I lost a large pot with a queen and a deuce, you don't really gain much information as to how villain is constructing their bluffs. But when they have the king and the queen, we can say just universally our play is profitable. It is going to make money over the long run and well done. Thank you. Very happy to have uh, abused this poor fellow on ignition. Maybe next week we can analyze some hands where you get smashed. That's the goal. Absolutely. Twist ending so that we're not always just making the right decisions in our hand breakdowns. Brad likes carnage, so absolutely. We'll, we'll find some of those. Actually, I said the wrong thing. We're not always making the right decision and getting the right result, right? Because there's a pretty important distinction there where you can make the right decision in this game and get the wrong result, and that can kind of lead you astray. So I do love carnage, though. Especially my carnage. Next week, lots of carnage on the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast, Tactical Tuesday. Check it out. Give us some feedback. Review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. You can also check out the Chasing Poker Greatness VIP newsletter to stay up to date on all of the impactful products that myself and Coach Thomas are creating. And with that, I am going to bid you adieu.